Welcome to the conference room with this week's guest, Carsten Willems. What is the common pattern between my customers? Yeah? What is the profile that I should look for? And you need to move from being opportunistic yeah, and chasing every single opportunity that comes up to really systematically approaching the market. Welcome to The Conference Room, a weekly podcast where business leaders and growth experts kindly share their experiences, actionable tips, and secrets to successfully grow a business. If you like the podcast, don't forget to subscribe and leave us a five-star review. It'll really help us out. And I really hope you enjoy this week's episode. I'm Simon Lader. Welcome to The Conference Room. Good afternoon and welcome to The Conference Room. I'm joined by Carsten Willems. Carsten is the co-founder and CEO of cybersecurity vendor VMRay. He's a doctorate in IT security from the University of Bochum in Germany, where he did his PhD and in 2007 founded his own cybersecurity consulting firm. In 2013, he co-founded VMRay and has overseen the company's growth to being one of the foremost threat analysis and detection platform vendors in the industry. And I'm delighted to say that he's agreed to join us here in the conference room. So, Dr. Carsten Willems, <laughs> good afternoon and welcome to the conference room. Yeah, thank you very much, Simon, for, for having me on the show and for this very nice uh, introduction. It's all right. It's all true. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Great stuff. Well, every hero has an origin story and you're the hero of our story. So tell me, how did you get from getting into IT security as a, uh, an undergraduate through to your doctorate, starting your own consulting company, and then subsequently the success that you've had at VMRay. Yeah, yeah, um, of course. I would like to share that story with you. So my my security interest and uh, my security, would say, career started much, much, much earlier before there was a real security industry out there, right? So I, I'm a techie by heart. My first computer was a Commodore VC20, which I got... I think more than 40 years ago. I'm 47 now. I got it when I was in first grade. So, um, and always, always, uh, all the years, I was very much interested in, in cracking and viruses and bulletin boards and these things. But of course, this was all fun and there was no industry. There were no professional attackers, no hackers and all of that. But very early on, I realized, hey, I'm, I'm kind of a native when it comes to IT and, and growing up with IT and computers and all these business people around me, they had no clue about what a computer is, how they can make use of it. So very early on, I became a freelancer doing kind of IT projects, also developing software, but not security software, like commercial software. And in the beginning, it was just paying my pocket money. And later I was able to make, to pay all my bills. Yes, I, I financed my whole studies just with my own um, software development companies or freelancer activities. And then I started uh, studying computer science 20 years ago, very theoretical, uh, no coding at all, right? Uh, no security, um, very, very, very theoretical uh, foundation in, in, in IT. And I was living in a student home in the, the late 90s, and that was the rise of the internet. And we had very fast internet connections there in the student dormitory, right? So a lot of, a lot of hacking, early hacking happened there. And the internet, of course, created a security industry because finally it became attractive for the attackers uh, to, to, to create 
worms and bots and viruses and all of these things and, and Trojan horses and so on. Before. So that was when I get first in touch with the professional security industry. And when I finished my, my uh, master's degree, I created an, a software, a tool for identification of unknown malware, yeah, because that was a, the, the, the rise of the malware. Right? Many, many AV vendors, many IPS vendors, and everyone was good in detecting things that are already known. But when there is a new type of malware, a new type of threat, there's always this window of vulnerability where the security industry needs to find out, hey, is this really dangerous? What is dangerous about it? How can we protect against it? And that was just no longer possible to do it in a manual way. So we were all looking for automated solutions to identify new attacks. And I created an, a tool for that. And I got in contact with a firm in the United States called Sunbelt Software. They invited me to Las Vegas to DEFCON to present my uh, diploma thesis. And yeah, it's a long story. Uh, short, I, I finally, I, I ended up in Vegas, but uh, that was pretty difficult to get there. I tried to, to get there with my with my ID. I didn't have a passport at that time. I never was on a plane before. I, I was even afraid, afraid of flying. So, but finally I ended up in, in a DEF CON at the last day uh, because of delays. And yeah, and I had a, had a dinner with, with the guys from Sunbelt and they commercialized my diploma thesis, the academic prototype into my first enterprise security solution. And that was pretty successful, right? And um, at some point in time, a few days later, they got acquired. So they bought me, paid me out. They bought the intellectual property. I went back to university, finished my, my PhD, which I was working on all the time in parallel to coding. And this is also where I met then the co-founder of VMRay. And we did several different academical hacking projects together, like, like uh, very early applications of machine learning more than 15 years ago. Um, hacking and cracking satellite phones, uh, CPU side channel attacks, and sandboxing. Now, sandboxing is the concept I described before that is able to identify zero-day attacks, not by looking at the file, not by looking at the structure, but looking at the behavior of something. And yeah, that is when we together decided then more than nine years ago to, uh, to found VMRay. And last point on this, I've seen how the company VMRay has transformed from, 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 from a small group of hackers into a real commercial business. And in the same way, I've seen the transformation of myself from a hacker to a CEO, yeah, which is not always fun. <laughs> you have to learn a lot of things that you didn't care about and you find stupid before when you were a hacker. But I think we will talk more about that transformation and how to turn a technology into a real company during during the interview, most likely. Right. No, absolutely. And 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 thank you for that. That's 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 amazing. Uh, and just before we go on to that, so what was it at the very very beginning? Um, I'm just curious that interested you and continues to interest you about um, about um, security, particularly when your ent your entrance into it was very much at its very early and almost fledgling stages. Was it more? I mean, are you a uh, a mathematician um is is it the math that that excites you is it the hunt and the chase mm. that excites you or what is it that drew that drew you initially you know as a young boy into this market and, and what continues to excite you yeah i am not 100 remember if i yeah yeah definitely i got infected by computer viruses yeah, in the very, very early days yeah the, with, without the internet the viruses spread via floppy disks yes. yeah and and when I was a young kid, of course, I was not buying my software, but 
there was a lot of these 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 pirate software yeah and uh in the, the commodore 64 days yeah as i've said 35 years ago now and so we shared a lot of floppy disks and we shared viruses and we infected each other and that was a very very bad situation so that is how i first got yeah affected by that but i think what is more important and that goes beyond computer viruses and malware is i always want to understand how things work I want to understand how they work. I tear them apart. I decompose. As a young kid, I decomposed electronic devices and repaired them and made them better, faster, louder, stuff like that. So I really want to understand how things work. I want to improve them. I don't want to be depending on someone else to invent something that I need. Yeah, but I really want to understand and build and use devices how I want to use them and not how the vendor intended me to use it because very often there are use cases that provide much more value to me or to users than what the vendor initially had in mind. And that's, I think, is the, the idea of hacking or reverse engineering and tearing things apart. Yeah. Right. So you were the kid that when your parents bought you a radio, you attacked it with a screwdriver and tried to... Uh, um... 100%. 100%. <laughs> and it was cool. As I said earlier, it was cool that as a kid, I mean... When I remember being a kid, I was always being told, you can't do that, you're not allowed to do that, you need to become uh, 18, and then you're allowed to do that, right? Uh, and I hated that. But when it came to technical things and IT, I was so much smarter than everybody else around me because, yeah, they would just not get used to it as I was as a kid. So I was able to do things that adults couldn't do, and they were paying me for that. And don't get me wrong, I didn't care about the money. I cared about... Someone is willing to pay for my work because he's getting value out of it. And that is cool. That gives me satisfaction. That gives me confidence in what I'm doing. So driven by the recognition rather, I mean, the money can't exactly. there, but it was the recognition. 100% the recognition. Exactly. Right. And later on, it turned out that, for example, by, by paying for my studies on my own, don't no longer being dependent on my parents, that also increased my, my will to, to become independent, yeah? And, and, and I just want to make my own decisions. And money, of course, helps you a lot with being independent. Right, no, absolutely. Okay, so let, let's let's turn to um, the, the point you made a little earlier when you were talking about um, the transition from identifying a technical mm. problem, solving that te technical problem, and then turning that solution into a company, okay? So... Obviously, the very, very beginning, and you, you you mentioned about your PhD thesis being taken by the company in, in America, and they productizing it and that becoming a an enterprise product. But what but with VMRay, you did that yourself, right? So talk me through the the steps that you took and the challenges that you faced turning a the solution to a problem into the basis of a company. Yeah. So probably first, first a disclaimer. So the, everything I'm, I'm giving as a tip or everything where I say, hey, you have to do it like this and don't do it like that. Of course, this is only very specific for my individual situation, right? So I, I'm, I'm a techie by heart. So that means I'm good with certain things. I'm very bad with other things. And therefore, other things may be more important for, 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 for other type of people. So what, what creates passion for me is, and I think I already indicated I'm passionate about solving hard problems, things, the problems that no one else can, or only very, very few people out there 
and so that is that is one driver so i care about the deep technology i don't care about uh, being faster gluing together open source components being good in faking until you make it these are all valid approaches and very often you can build a more lucrative business probably than i am able to do but in order to remain passionate yeah, and over the time over the course of 10 years seeing that transformation where i no longer do technology things myself but i'm a ceo i can only do that if i'm passionate about the thing i'm doing and that is solving very very hard problems and that requires deep technology yeah? so at the starting point um i think it is a very very good uh if you are if you feel the pain of the problem yourself that you want to solve Right. So I was a security researcher. I was a security engineer. I was dealing a lot with malware. And I realized, hey, it's fun to reverse engineer a malware. But it's taking so much time and it's so complicated. Right. So why, why not build a tool that is doing that in a fully automated manner? Right. So I was originally one of the of the of the of the users of my own solution. But I think if you are in the industry, it gives you a much better understanding of the problem and how a solution should look like. But that's not the only thing. Being industry, it's being in the part of the industry also gives you some reputation. It gives you a community. It gives you a network of people that you can talk to to get a better understanding of the problem of the solution. And it also helps you a lot in getting early access to potential early adopters. Yeah, because you already earned their trust. They are much more willing to test your tool than if you were yeah, just coming from the outside. So I can only talk about a company that is built on a technology that I really understand, that I also understand why it is there, why I have seen the, the different evolutionary steps over the last two decades. And that is, at least for me, the only way how I can build a company like that. Now, I know there are many, many other approaches, but this is the way how I did. So in the very early, early days, um, everything is about understanding a problem that where you can replicate a solution. Yeah, so I see many startups, for example, that often don't have funding. So here in Germany, for example, having VCs on board is not the default case. It's just becoming now the default case. And if you don't have funding, you, you need to make early revenue because you have to pay the bills. You want to hire people, you want to, 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 to pay your own bills. And therefore, you're doing a lot of customizations. You're doing one-time projects with customers. You're providing services. You're doing consulting. But my way of doing that is building a standard software, which you can sell 10,000 times. Yeah? So not getting distracted. And that already brings me to the point of raising money. So we at VMware uh, deliberately in the past to raise money at day one because we didn't want to be in a situation where we were so eagerly looking for first revenue that we do everything that potential customers asking for that only helps with this particular customer but not with all the other potential customers so i want to build standard software right that's super important so understanding the problem in the first place having people around you which you can use as a sounding board, which will also willing to test an early prototype of your solution. Having the funding that you have some time to work on a solution instead of being pulled by different potential customers. And often they don't become customers. They just tell you, hey, build this, build this, build that, right? And, and that, is, that is not helping. And then at some point you have sold a few um, licenses to 
either a very narrow niche of customers or to very different customers. And you don't see the commonality. Yeah? It's very hard to, to already identify what's our ideal customer profile. You can't do that in the very early beginning. But you need to prove to yourself and you need to prove to your probably existing employees and you need to prove to your uh, investor that there is at least demand in the market that is willing to pay money, right? That's a very early stage. And then you have to better understand, okay, what is the common pattern between my customers? Yeah, What is the profile that I should look for? And you need to move from being opportunistic yeah, and chasing every single opportunity that comes up to really systematically approaching the market. And then you get a better understanding of your value proposition. You get a better understanding of your ideal customer profile. And you're analyzing your success so far. And as everywhere, you can learn much more from your losses and from your mistakes than what you can learn from your success. So specifically, it's valuable to talk to people that have not chosen to buy your solution. Why? Yeah, what is what what, what is wrong? What 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 were the gaps? Um, why why didn't you do that? And that means talking a lot to customers and prospects and to lost prospects. Um, then you also start to monitor the usage. How are your clients using the product? I mean, nowadays, most of us have a SaaS solution. It's easy, but we started with on-prem and we still have on-prem solutions for very sensitive environments. And it's not that easy to monitor how your customer is using an on-prem solution. Specifically for VMware, we have a lot of government customers in fully air-gapped environments. Yeah, there is no channel where we can send back some statistical information about the product usage. So monitoring the usage. And then you also, of course, have these lagging KPIs like net retention, upsell rates, downsell rates. And with all that information, you then move from early adopters to a replicable business model with an ICP and with a product market fit. Yeah? And we have achieved that point some time ago with one product, but then we realized, and I'm just giving that as an example, I don't want to talk too much about VMware, but then we realized, hey, we have X amount of customers and 20% of them are buying much, much bigger licenses than the other 80%. Why is that the case? Now, so these customers, and these customers didn't have different profiles than the one that bought smaller licenses. So there must be some bigger value that is visible to these customers paying more than the ones not paying more. And then we realized, hey, some of our customers have identified more new adjacent use cases where they extract much more value of our solution than what we, what we have in mind. Yeah? And then you think about, okay, how can I expand my business? How ex can I expand the usage of my solution into adjacent use cases? And that is when the next iteration of, hey, uh, are we have, do we have a product market fit? Yeah, how do we get more information and stuff like that? So it's it's an iterative cycle, at least for a point product as we have at the end. It's interesting. I, I want to come back on two points, um, <laughs> and I'm actually going to do them a little bit in reverse order. So, um, so I, I, I want to in a moment uh, just turn to um, how you um, get an investor when you don't have a product yet. But we'll come to that in a sec. But just before we do, um, it's. Uh, it's interesting that um, when you were talking about your very, very early days as a hacker and you were saying, I was going to take a product, reverse engineer it because I may well have an idea of what this product can do more than the vendor themselves. It's interesting that's kind of like come full circle now where you are effectively 
um, jumping into the minds of those 20% of customers that are using the product far more than the other 80 to determine what is it that they figured out in terms of a use case that we hadn't. So it's it's almost that you're, you're doing what you were doing as a user to someone else's product 20 years ago. You're now doing it now in the mindset of your customers for your own products. I, I think it's it's a very interesting um, kind of almost full circle that you've gone on. Actually, I had the same thought while I was talking Yeah, a few minutes ago. I didn't realize that earlier on. You're totally right. And I'm, as I've said, I'm only describing my personal experience. Probably in, in a company where right from the start, you have people that are very experienced in all different areas and very strategic and having that done several times before, probably you don't need your customers to find out these additional use cases, but you have a strategic development process yourself that you do that and you start doing that much earlier. Yeah, but here at VMray, I mean, we, we are a techie founded company, two techies founded them, right? So we always, we always have been pretty strong on tech. We always have been pretty strong in winning the biggest customer logos in the world. But we, it took us many, many, many years to also become commercially successful, like having bigger deal sizes, doing everything in a systematic manner, being more focused, doing less, but that more intense and faster. And I think that is also, I mean, if I had, for example, a strong CFO, uh, a strong uh, sales uh, leader, right from the start, we probably would have been much faster, but it would also have been less fun. Yeah. So a lot of a lot of the things that we learned and that we that we have mastered now were were trial and error. Right. I mean, of course, this is not how the situation today is. Many years ago, with the addition of more investors. Uh, they 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 um, softly put us towards also increasing the maturity of the organization in the non-tech part, uh, and we have achieved that. So we're pretty commercially successful these days. But in the early years, actually, I didn't care. It was so easy to raise money, and it was cooler to build greater tech than everybody else there. And winning these great customer logos gave us a lot of confidence that what we're doing is there's demand for it. But I'd never thought about profitability or things like that in the early years. Right. So going back to, I mean, you made a remark just then of, of you know, raising money was easy. Um, and right at the beginning, you were saying that, uh, you know, we had a, a problem. I wanted to figure out how to solve the problem. So rather than um, diversifying my effort, and which what a lot of companies do of, uh, I'm going to do some consulting work over there. I'm going to do some customization over here and uh, and all that. I'm going to stay absolutely, resolutely sort of intentional to focus on purely the core product that can be replicated and sold, you know, to 10,000 um, different companies. Um, and and, and um, so I'm guessing that that means that you need to have an investor in place at the beginning before the product was built okay so how does one go about getting an investor to part with a significant sum of money to give you the runway to develop a product mm-hmm. um when there's no product already there so again i can only talk about my okay so how did you do it i wouldn't i would imagine that um, the stories, how to attract investors, how you deal with investors, how fast you add 
investors uh, is, is, is very, very different for, for very different people. Um, when we first when we first approached the first investor, um, that was the only investor I was able to identify in Germany yeah, at this point in time. So meanwhile, the situation has, of course, changed a lot. So there's a lot of investments possible here in Europe, still way, 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 way lower than it is in the United States or on Israel, for example, for security companies. Mm -hmm. But it, 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 it finally, it finally uh, is trending up a lot. Uh, but when, 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 we, when, we, when we raised uh, money the very first time, I know I had one address to go to <laughs> and we went there and we pitched. And uh, on the third slide, uh, the guy said, oh, please, it's boring. Uh, go, go to the last slide. And I was so upset because I gave a lot of presentations in academia. Right. Yeah? But of course, you can't use academical slides to pitch an investor. So, but nevertheless, nevertheless, we, we somehow achieved um, finally to, to get the money. And with each investment round, I, I was becoming more mature, more professional, seeing the investor as a partner. But also one thing that completely changed in the very first investment rounds, Uh, I always thought I had the mindset that the investor is doing a favor to us. He gives us money, right? But now the, the situation has completely changed in my head. We provide an opportunity to the investor to invest money to, into good business. Yeah. But in the early days as a techie, I didn't have that mindset. Yeah. And also, therefore, I was uh, acting in, in, in a very different way. The point is here why we had been able to convince that investor was a mixture. No, I would say it's, it's a mixture of reputation. I think the pitch was not good. So the pitch was definitely not the thing that convinced them. But I already had another company before. We had two good uh, letter of in, uh, intent from uh, big German public companies. Yeah, they said, yeah, it's great stuff. We want to use it and so on the forest. And yeah, and also having a PhD in cybersecurity was helping at least to um convince them or give them proof points that we're not making up everything but there is some solid foundation behind right. but talking about reputation i mean we all all see these these crazy news even now um where companies without a product without customers sometimes even without employees yeah get crazy amount of investment because the founders have a long track record they have a reputation Yeah, they worked at large companies, they did it before. And that is something that is super important and powerful when talking to investors. So if you're talking to the first investor, you may be interested or not. And you can do that for many, many times. But once you have found someone who's interested in investing and you let the others know, they also become very much interested. Yeah? So everyone is trying to, to minimize the risk by either creating an assessment on their own or relying on the reputation of others. Yeah? And therefore, it is super important to have a good network, to have a reputation, to convince people, to, and that yeah, makes it easier every time. Yeah? Right. Okay, great. So a little earlier, you were talking about the transition that VMRay has mm -hmm. gone through from being um, a company that was, to paraphrase, um, more interested in developing the coolest and the best tech than necessarily profitability. And your own transition from being a hacker to a CEO, okay? Um, so talk me through that transition and how that has sort of manifested itself in 
both the company and you as an individual. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I said that in the beginning, we were all techies. Yeah? The two founders were techies. Every single employee was a techie. We had an artist, I think, for, for UI and stuff like that, but that was all. Yeah? First 15, 20 employees, all techies, software developers, security researchers, and stuff like that, um, which is great for tech, but it's not great for everything else. Right. Yeah. So, so one of the learnings is that we should have much, much earlier added two things to our company. One is a commercial perspective, and the other one is experience. I mean, I was experienced uh, experienced in tech, but I was not experienced in sales, marketing, finance, HR, legal, all of these things. And of course, we only had very limited uh, uh, funding, very limited possibilities in the beginning. But we should have one learning is we should have earlier added commercial perspective and experience to our team. So we had to learn it the hard way uh, through trial and error, which produces, I think, deeper understanding and deeper learning. But it's also taking much more time. So that was one of the learnings and one of the transformation. Um, and then in the beginning, we were selling two techies only. Yeah, we were techies. The customer, the user was a techie. That was easy. Yeah, we used the same language. We didn't need to translate everything into business values and higher level, high altitude uh, values. And that was working very well, but it also hindered us from selling higher into the target organization so that uh, not only one team of our customer, but two or three or four teams can get value out of our products. In order to do that, we need to convince the business deciders. We need to convince the CISO and not only the techie. So in order to do that, we had the right product, but we didn't have the right messaging and positioning and the right pitch decks. And we didn't have the right language. We didn't know how to translate technical advantages into business values, right? I mean, of course, I can always say, hey, we increase ROI and and, and reduce risk, blah, 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 but that is all generic bullshit. We really need to translate that into the pain points of what keeps the CISO awake at night, for example, what keeps the, 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 the head of the sock awake at night. So in order to, to being able to also talk to these guys and convince them, because we cannot use our technological expertise to convince them, we needed to, yeah, to, to, to become more mature, to add more people that help us, that train us, completely uh, uh, change the, the marketing approach. Yeah? So we needed to move to really become a value-based selling machine where we only be, uh, uh, have been a tech tech pitching company in the past. Yeah, that is a transformation. And I also see that on my, on my personal role, of course, in a scale-up, all the roles change all the time. So every few years, the requirements for doing a certain type of, of job are, are different. Yeah? And most people um grow with that yeah most people develop themselves and grow some people don't yeah some people are good at a certain stage but at a later stage they they no longer fit into the company unfortunately that's that's the case but i think that's everywhere there yeah on my personal side um i used to be a hardcore techie sitting in my basement living in the working in the night sleeping on the day so i'm not distracted right i'm talking to machines i'm talking to people that use machines every problem i thought Technological problems were complex and challenging, but having stepped out of tech, I think technological problems are super easy because everything is deterministic. It's either right or wrong. It's true or false. There's no ambiguity, right? When you have to deal with people, 
<laughs> yeah, that makes things complicated, specifically when you are a tech person that only talked to machines for 35 years or so. Yeah. So I had to, to invest a lot of time and effort and energies in building out a certain level of, of people skills and leadership skills. I needed to learn a lot about organizational development. Yeah, I was I'm super structured and efficient when I'm doing working on my own. Yeah, but but working in a team and working in a team of teams, of course, requires so many processes and structures and repetition and explanation. And all of that is not necessary when you are just in a small team or working on your own. And last but not least, that strategic thinking. So what do we need or backtracking? What do we want to achieve in three years? What do we need to do in 12 months and six months? What do we need to do now to get there? That long-term view and that strategic thinking is completely, completely has been completely new to me, and I'm very happy that over the last years I, I learned a lot. We learned a lot as as an organization, as an executive team. Um, that is definitely something that is also brought to us by experienced people. We brought into the company by investors. We brought on the board. Yeah, so that is something that is joint effort to say. Okay, great. So um, something that that uh, occurred to me when we were sort of talking and uh, and looking at the history of VMRA is that uh, it's somewhat unique in that most technology companies um, will take um, seed funding and then within a year or two, they'll take Series A, a year or two after that, take Series B, maybe 18 months after that, take Series C, D, whatever, right? Um, VMRA went probably was it eight years from forming until until taking uh their their second sort of major round of funding wasn't it no that's not uh, i know where you're aiming at and that's totally right but i think series a was much faster it was already after two years or three years and then we had the b round and then a b round extension but it is completely right that we raised much less money and much slower yes. than most of our mostly US and Israeli counterparts. Yeah? And there are different reasons for that. Uh, a, we are in Germany, yeah, where I said that there used to be a very, uh, a much smaller uh, a scale up startup scene. Yeah? Um, most people don't consider founding a company after they finish school or studies, but they just become an employee of a US firm, for example, right? I know many of my security friends immediately starting for working for, for US companies. And there was not that, yeah, there was not that ecosystem. There were no VCs. It was very hard to convince US VCs and stuff like that. That's one thing. The other thing is um, we have a niche product. Yeah, so we it took us time, as I said, as I explained, to really step out of that niche so that we are no longer only targeting, let's say, a 300 million market or 400 million market, but now a 10 billion market, right? Mm. And that, of course... Uh, uh, has an impact on how attractive you look to an investor, right? Uh, but the last, and I think the most important point is that for us, we focused very, very long on tech. Yeah. And uh, we focused on building the greatest tech. And if we had pivoted to putting the commercial perspective, at least into focus much earlier, then also we probably would have raised much more money earlier. But I'm not sad about that. Yeah, it's it's. I think we have built something really sustainable. 
And it also gives us a great advantage over many, many companies that raised a lot. Yeah. Because we have seen so many companies going down the last year, the EBITDA. We have seen massive layoffs. We have not laid off any single person because of the economy. And what we're seeing now, where we finally have gained that maturity in our go-to-market, in our positioning, where we have a, a, a diversified portfolio, we are very successful in growing existing customers. Yeah, because there's so much potential to grow without winning new customers, because there is so much more value we can provide to the customers with these additional use cases and stuff like that. And we are increasing our average deal sizes very significantly over the last quarters, where I see a lot of companies failing in the industry. So yes, we are slower for reasons than com many comparable companies. But in the end, we have built a very sustainable business and that is really taking off over the last four quarters or five quarters in a row. Yeah. That's great. It's fantastic. And it's, it's also really refreshing to hear that there are different ways of doing things. There, it, and not, not everyone has to follow that uh, kind of fake it till you make it um open source grab as much money as you can um route there are other ways to do it uh that will suit different people and it's very refreshing to hear a success story that that's uh, slightly different from the norm so uh, I, I, one, sorry. Sorry, one, one thing that just came to my mind yeah and that is also the the the, the, the german techie uh, perspective right um, when we when we first pitched the investor and we came up with some projected forecasts, yeah, tiny, tiny numbers, tiny numbers. And they said, oh, that's way too little. You need to put a zero at the end of each of these numbers. <laughs> we said, are you crazy? Because we're techies. Yeah, we are not good in uh, not being exact. We always want to be conservative. Yeah, we always want to be, we want to under-promise and over-deliver. That's, that's, that's my approach, that's our approach. But... If you compete for investor money with mainly U.S. companies that have a very different mindset, I mean, the U.S. mindset is opportunity-oriented, the German mindset is risk-oriented, right? Mm -hmm. That has many disadvantages. And if you compete against uh, people that are very good in over-promising, right, uh, then you always look weak. But, I mean, obviously, after some time, it is proved that this is not weak, but this is just more realistic. But... When there was this huge bubble in the capital markets over the last years, I mean, we all know how much money was raised, how much money was burned without profitability, and how much of that growth was only driven by money put into the marketing machine and not having a strong tech in the end. Mm. You know? Yeah, no, absolutely. No, and, and again, um, it's fantastic to hear um, that there is this other approach that is just as viable and in fact probably for many people would be a, a much better way to go so um with that in mind what three tips would you give to somebody who wants to follow in your footsteps maybe there's a a really bright techie that wants to start a product company mm. okay someone who wants to follow in your footsteps what three tips would you give for them yeah, one thing I already mentioned, but let me clarify that is not relying solely on the technical expertise, but combining things, combining three things. Yeah, one is deep tech, understanding, expertise, at best, being in the shoes of a potential customer before. Yeah, feeling, having felt the pain. Yeah, like I felt the pain when my 
floppy disks got infected with, with early Commodore 64 viruses. Um, so deep technology, for sure, that's a starting point. But then very early on, adding the commercial perspective to the, to the organization and not relying on the technical uh, part and getting experience, experienced people. I mean, of course, you cannot afford very experienced people in the very early days or often you can't. Uh, but you should also be, yeah, no, but that's the point, yeah? Deep tech, commercial perspective, and experienced people. That's number one. Um, number two, you need focus. Yeah, so many years we did everything. Everything, every time there was a seemingly opportunity coming up, we, 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 we followed it. And very often it was not an opportunity in the first place. We just have not been able to assess the seriousness, the impact, and so on, the force correctly. So we tried many, many different things, and some worked, others don't. I think it's still great to try things, but at some point in time, you need to become focused, doing much less, doing them better, doing them more intense, doing them faster, and always, and that is also something we learned only pretty late, always have that ROI perspective in mind. Yeah? How much time, energy, and money, but money always comes at the last point, do I have to invest, and what is the expected outcome? What am I not able to do at the same time by chasing this opportunity? And so focus and becoming clear and doing less, not in the first 12 months, but probably not only after five or six years. That's too late. And the third thing is, as a techie, I always thought growing a company means growing headcount. Yeah, and not growing revenue. That is already uh, describing one of the core problems I, I, I said earlier. And I always thought with more people, you are more productive, but this is wrong. Yeah? Adding more people means adding complexity, adding costs, everything becomes slower. You have to invest so much time into hierarchy, processes, structure, repeating things, explaining things, all of that, right? Of course, you should grow the headcount in, in the right way, but more in a selective and controlled growth motion yeah and having many 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 juniors is great but having much less seniors is greater yeah so experience is really important so here we are a spin-off of the university our first employees were all juniors super smart people and we still have juniors from the university here but you need the right mix because people that have never worked in a job before well um, sometimes it works, but sometimes it also takes a lot, a lot of work. And specifically, if there are no role models, if there are not uh, no senior people in their teams where they can uh, uh, learn from, that doesn't work. And last but not least, uh, the fourth tip, but it, it belongs to the third one. I said <laughs> only value your fourth. It's okay. I'll allow your fourth. <laughs> Everybody told me right from the start: you need to measure. You need to measure everything. Yeah. Um, it took us quite a long time to have real analytics, yeah, to looking at our pipeline, our business, our numbers in a very analytical way, generating insights and making decisions based on pure facts and no longer on gut feeling. Yeah, specifically in the early years where we opportunistically tried everything, yeah, we had no way of estimating what is the ROI of that, what is of that. So building out strong analytical capabilities very early and not only after many, many years. That is super important. And that also removes a lot of pressure because finally you have more clarity, 
your decisions are backed up by, by, by reasoning. You can write it down. You can discuss it uh, versus the CEO says, hey, we do this or we do that or we do this. Yeah, that is, that is not working. So analytical capabilities, measuring, invest into finance people, yeah, invest into non-techies earlier than it took us a long time to really see the value of non-tech people. Yeah? And that is, of course, stupid in hindsight. But back in the days, that was my mindset. Yeah. Right. Okay, that's fantastic. So what's next for you and for VMRI? Mm. We, I mean, there was one uh, a, a huge big step in company history just in April where we uh, diversified our portfolio and we went from one product to three products. Yeah, so that is, was a huge step. And that was the continuation of better understanding the use cases of our clients so we can uh, provide better packaging, better value, better explanation, better support, all of that. So that was huge. Now we have three products. And right now we have a lot of work with executing that. Yeah, migrating existing customers, training that everybody really understands the new portfolio and everything about it. So that was a huge step. And then a few weeks ago, for the very first time, we launched Linux support. So now we are able to um, identify and detect Linux malware, which is on the rise because of all the cloud infrastructure situation. So these were really two big, big things we did at VMware. So for the next 12 months, we focus on execution. We focus on becoming profitable. Yeah. So... Uh, that is also, as I've now mentioned several times, a, a huge new spin in, in how we operate the business. Yeah, working towards profitability to become independent. And of course, in parallel, we're having a lot of strategic development uh, for new options for the future. But I don't want to talk about anything that will only come in 12 months or so. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. And if people want to reach out to you, um, how can they best do that? Yeah, I think LinkedIn is the best, uh, but it's, what is important is just, just leave a note why you're reaching out. Yeah? I'm getting so many crazy inquiries on a daily basis, and most of the time, I just ignore it. It's just not possible. But if you just put me a line, hey, I, I'm interested in X, Y, Z. I've seen you on Simon's show, whatever. That is definitely a good uh, helping thing to make me answer. Yeah? Okay. okay, great stuff. And I'll make sure we post a link to your, uh, to your LinkedIn profile in the show notes below. But in the meantime, Carsten, I can't thank you enough for being on here. I know how busy you are. Um, yeah, you and I have got to know each other well over the last kind of three or four years or so. And it's been a real joy to spend this quality time with you and to understand your story and to really get into the details of what's made VMRay and you as an individual so successful. And uh, I'm just so um, grateful for your time uh, being here. So, Carsten, Dr. Carsten Villams, thank you so much for being here and joining us on the conference room. Yeah, thank you very much, Simon. I, I very much enjoyed that conversation. I'm, I'm a big fan of podcasts in general and also of your podcast. So, I really like listening. And actually, I also feel the duty to, to contribute. And by the way, I learned some things about VMRate, about myself during this interview as well. So, there's also some intrinsic value for me. Thank you very much for having me on the show. Thank you very much. Coming up next week on The Conference Room, I'll be talking to social media guru, Jules Vitality. Maximize that because that is really your business card. Put what you would have put on a business card in the traditional world on your social media. Treat your social media as your business card and your resume. 
Thanks so much for listening. We really appreciate it. And make sure you visit our website, theconferenceroompodcast.com, to see all the other episodes and to get access to the show notes and resources mentioned in this episode. If you enjoyed the episode, please share it with your network, or better still, go on to Apple Podcasts or Spotify or any other podcast platform and leave us a five-star review. It'll only take you a moment, but it'll mean the world to us. And please don't hesitate to tell us which topics you'd like us to cover in future episodes. To get in touch, drop us a line in the comments section or send us a message on social media. Just search for The Conference Room Podcast or me, Simon Lader, on Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram, or TikTok. I'm always open to a conversation. And don't forget to hit that subscribe button so you'll be alerted when a new episode goes live every week. Thanks so much for listening to The Conference Room, and until next time, keep talking.